Last week, we wrapped up our Bellingham Brewery tour, and this week, we're back in Minneapolis for a phone interview that's been a long time coming. I'm chatting with Ryan Petz, the CEO and co-founder of Fulton Brewery, and we talk about contract brewing and growing a brewery from a baby to a behemoth in the bike-loving city of Minneapolis. I'm the cycling certified Cicerone, and this is Washington Beer Talk. So my name is Ryan Petz. Uh, I am the CEO and one of the co-founders of Fulton Brewing here in Minneapolis. And what do you do at the brewery as a CEO? Uh, I get to do a little bit of a lot of things. Um, I oversee kind of our sales, marketing, and finance, uh, along with um, some of the um, supply chain and brewing stuff too. But I'm I'm uh, working closely with a lot of people uh, within our company who have. Um, a little bit uh, deeper responsibility in each of those areas. Okay, so you you oversee everything, um, and so you probably don't do very much of the dirty brewing yourself, do you? Uh, unfortunately, not currently. Um, we uh, I, I used to brew pretty much every week until about uh, I guess it's a few years ago now that we uh, we commissioned our, our second brewery, and as we got bigger and hired more brewers, and I had more things pulling me the other way. I, I haven't really done any brewing recently. So to give me a scale, a sense of scale of your brewery, um, how many employees do you guys have? We got about 62 as of last count. 62. All right. And that makes you guys definitely one of the bigger breweries uh, in, in in Minneapolis, right? Yeah, we are like fourth or fifth biggest in, in Minnesota. Give me a sense of where you guys are located. Um, I've spent a lot of time in the Twin Cities over in St. Paul and in Minneapolis. So, like, or which, you know, all, every brewery kind of falls somewhere in that in that range between those two cities. Whereabouts are you guys? So, we actually have two locations, uh, both in Minneapolis. Um, our original brewery is, uh, is downtown Minneapolis or on the edge of downtown. Um, it's in what's called the North Loop neighborhood, which has been kind of a one of the up-and-coming hot neighborhoods um, in the city, uh, basically since around the time we started. Not that I'm taking credit for that by any means, but uh, we're uh, we're we're located uh, about a block from Target Field, where the Minnesota Twins play, um, which mm. opened uh, the same year that we uh, started to move our brewery into that location in 2010. Um, and so ever since then, there's been just a lot of development going on in the neighborhood with, um, you know, apartments and condos and you know, nice high-end restaurants and uh, boutique shops, that sort of thing. So um, really cool neighborhood, a lot of cool stuff going on, and it's fun to be kind of right in the, in the heart of that. Um, uh, our other brewery we, we built in starting in 2014, or sorry, 2013, I guess. We brewed our first batch in 2014. Um, as I said, it's also in Minneapolis. This is in northeast Minneapolis. Um, it's more of an industrial part of town. Um, this is our much bigger production brewery, so we do most of the beer we distribute comes out of out of the northeast brewery, um, and that's where most of our employees work. Uh, we don't have a tap room at the northeast brewery. That's at the the downtown one in, in North Loop, um, but that's again where most of the production and, and people are. 
you said that the the new production facility opened in 2014. Did you mention when the first when the original location opened? Yeah, so uh, we started our company in 2009. We sold our first beer uh, October 28th, 2009. Um, but for our first couple years, we were contract brewing in Wisconsin. Um, we got things off the ground pretty quickly and built that uh, the, the the downtown brewery North Loop um, in sold our first batch out of there in late 2011. Um, and then the, the Northeast brewery was started moving in in 2013 and brewed our first batch out of it in 2014. Again, for that sense of scale, are you guys bigger or smaller than Surly? We're quite a bit smaller. They're, they are the, the next biggest brewery above us, but they're, they're quite a ways ahead of us. Yeah, when I was in town, I think the first beer I had uh, was your Blonde, and I really, really liked it. I mean, the first thing I noticed was it didn't taste too much like what I expected. It was a lot kind of maltier and crunchier, and I really, really enjoyed it. But it, it definitely stood out in, um, among a lot of beer that I was drinking, so way to go. Oh, great. Thank you. So how about you talk a little bit about – so you're the CEO. You've been with the brewery, obviously, since the beginning, co-founder. Um, what were the – what? was the pre-brewery history you know what was ryan up to before uh before the brewery what kind of got you in what what got you started yes yeah, so uh myself and and three guys uh, uh jim Diley, brian hoffman peter grand uh co-founded the brewery uh so the four of us are uh co-founders and partners we're all still partners and kind of operating managers of the company um, and the four of us had started homebrewing together out of uh, Jim's garage in South Minneapolis uh, back in like 2006. And at that point, uh, none of us really had any beer industry experience uh, other than drinking beer, which I don't think counts as industry experience. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, but we got really into the homebrewing thing really quickly. Uh, uh, we were brewing in Jim's kind of one car garage in, in the alley in South Minneapolis and quickly got really into it. Um, started building more advanced home brewing equipment. We moved to Peter's uh, two car garage across uh, the neighborhood um, and kind of kept going with it to the point where we thought we were pretty good home brewers, which uh, sort of leads to the conversation of, wow, you know, this would be really fun if we could do this for a living. Um, in that way, I think we're probably no different from any homebrewers ever because every homebrewer who likes their own beer enough probably daydreams about that. Uh, yeah, tales all this time. Yeah, right. Uh, and uh, uh, but you know, at that time in Minnesota, there were there were very few breweries. Um, this is now like 07, 08 or so, and uh, there were maybe ten or twelve. Um, and you know, there were no tap rooms in Minnesota at that time. That was a law that was several years into the future that was going to change. So there, were, uh, there wasn't a big brewery base and there were some, uh, legal hurdles as that just made it more of a, a an economic wall to scale, I guess you could say when you don't have that ability to sell through a tap room. So, mm-hmm. um, we, uh, we, we thought it was actually a, maybe a, a, industry that was coming around finally. I mean, we could see what was happening in the beer scene in other parts of the country. There was a lot of great beers being brought into Minnesota. So we were like, well, maybe maybe this area is, is kind of ripe for it. Maybe our timing would be good. Um, on a personal level, I was in, uh, I had left my day job to go back to school full time to get my business degree. And mm-hmm. so in, uh, this is in like the fall of 08, 
uh, into 2009. And of course, that's when the economic downturn really hit the whole country really hard. And so um, for, for myself, I was thinking, wow, I just left my day job and now I'm going back to school. But meanwhile, nobody's hiring right now. Um, nobody's even hiring interns, which is like a big part of the, the business school program that I was in. So I'm kind of wondering, like, what am I going to do for a job, uh, one, over the summer between my two years in school and then two, more importantly, like when I get out of school. So uh, the four of us sat down and continued to have those talks of like, hey, maybe we could actually start this this brewery right now, despite the fact that we don't have any brewing experience, don't have any business experience, don't have any money or, or anything like that, but maybe there's a way. Uh, and so for us, that way was uh, you know doing a lot of due diligence and calling around and trying to figure out how to do it. And we landed on the contract brewing model to start with because of, I mean, I was 26 years old at the time. The other guys were similar age. And, and again, we were thinking, well, <laughs> we don't have a lot of means to just build a brewery of our own, but this is a way for us to um, take our beer from the garage to actual real production to learn how to, to brew hands-on at a full-scale commercial brewery. And one of our, our key criteria as we, we chose where to contract brew was um, the ability to actually brew the beer ourselves and get to know the process on a, on a production commercial scale with the idea that we're going to build our own brewery someday. Describe what the contract brewing, um, what that really feels like. Because what I'm imagining is basically you guys driving down with a truckload of malt to some brewery in Wisconsin and saying, hey, mind if we use your stuff. Um, is that more or less accurate? Uh, that's It's a abridged version, but not too inaccurate, I would say. Um, so uh, with uh, with malt, for example, they, they typically supply the malt. They work with the same supplier. So... Um, uh, but yeah, we would drive to, so the brewery is called Sand Creek Brewing Company, uh, in, in Black River Falls, Wisconsin. It's about two hours from the Twin Cities. So yeah, like, uh, in the beginning, like once a week, we would drive there. Um, I always remember it being Wednesdays. It wasn't always Wednesdays, but, uh, we'd drive to Sand Creek. And of course, you know, this is after we had sort of set up the arrangement with them in which we said, all right, these are our recipes. We want to scale them up. Um, we supplied the hops in terms of we bought them separately, but then we would just essentially buy the malt from Sand Creek. Um, right. And and then we would brew the beer on their equipment. You know, in, in, in the very beginning, they're like, okay, you can watch as as we, we brew. And then uh, my partner, Peter, who's our brewmaster now, um, you know, got to the point where it, not, not very far down the road where they're like, all right, yeah, Pete, you can come and brew this week on this particular day. I imagine that you guys being unexperienced and using this like fancy industrial equipment from some other brewery probably made them a little bit nervous. Would you like, I don't know, what do you think? Is that like, does that make sense? Would that scare other brewers? Yeah, I I think about uh, us allowing someone else to do that. And I'm not picturing that being something that would actually happen uh, (laughs) nowadays. you know, and, and, and like the Sand Creek guys uh, were were very cool and and uh, accommodating in that way. And I think I don't think they would do that for anybody or everybody. Uh, but once they had a certain comfort level with us, and uh, and Pete, our brewmaster, is a is a very quick study and a very smart guy, and was kind of the. I mean, imagine it like uh, if you were them, you've just hired a 
somebody who you want to be a brewer for you, but you think is uh, has very little experience. You think they have potential, so it's like, all right, you're going to shadow me, and then we'll feel it out as it goes until I'm confident that you can do this on your own without screwing something up. I imagine contract brewing is a beneficial arrangement for both brewers. Um, how much does it like? How much does that eat into your bottom line? I guess. Well, it definitely is a percent. I mean, it it depends on who you're, where you're brewing, and and various things. But it, in the simplest terms possible, it makes something that would otherwise be like a fixed cost. Uh, you owning the brewery and having um, employees and and labor and such. Uh, and making it into a variable cost, and, and so the contract brewer is saying, all right, we're going to charge you X dollars a keg and Y dollars a case for every unit that we produce. So it does take a part of your margin, but it takes away having that huge fixed cost and that huge startup cost. Because, again, in, in our situation, we didn't have you know half million dollars or more to put together to, to build our own brewery, and... Uh, we weren't even confident in trying to attract investors at that point because because we were inexperienced and didn't have a lot of background or a lot of anything to point to. So um, it's yeah, it's just a it's a trade off of sorts that was beneficial to start with. Mm-hmm. And doesn't it eat up their fermenters? Like, aren't they sitting there stressing about the fact that you know that could be their beer they're brewing? Is that like does that math out well for them? Um, you know, I think it depends on the, the business model of the, the host brewery because, um, yeah, a lot of breweries just don't even ever consider contracting for someone else because they don't have capacity for anybody else beyond themselves and, and maybe not even enough for themselves. Um, other breweries, uh, it's just part of their business model and say, you know what, we, we can produce X amount of our own brands, but we don't have enough demand to fill out our total capacity that we have today. So um, we'll contract it out to someone else. So, yeah. uh, But I mean, definitely in our case, in those early days at Sand Creek, I mean, it was always like we were growing quickly. They had some other contract customers too uh, that had, you know, we're all kind of feel like we're fighting for the same fermenters. Um, Mm. And at a certain point we, we were ready to move on because we were like, well, they're, they're of a certain size, and, and we want to keep growing and and go from there. Yeah, at a certain point, you're driving down so often to brew, and at a, at a, eventually you kind of reach the point where you're like, well, you, we want to brew more beer than you're brewing at all, and we can't take you over your entire brewery. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and, and and for us, I mean, the, the idea was always that someday we'd, we'd build our own brewery. I mean, in those early uh, discussions, I remember us thinking – yeah, maybe, you know, this works out and someday this could be our day job and in five or ten years we could build our own brewery and do it at our own place. Um, and all of those things happened, but in that case, that was an example of things happening much more quickly than we would have guessed. When you were contract brewing, were you, like, basically making profit, enough money to sort of, were you saving up money to build the system or were you just kind of building a brand following that later you could bring to investors and say, listen, we need this money to do this? More so of the latter. I mean, we were cash flowing enough to support our own growth, I guess would be a way to say it. Um, yeah. we, we definitely weren't uh, at, at the point where it's like, all right, well, now we have enough saved up to buy all this equipment. So it was more, again, more of what I say of the latter in, in terms of we've built something where we've kind of, first and foremost, you know, we've made a, a, 
a, a beer or several beers at that point that we're proud of, that the market is really responding to, that we have demand for. Um, and we've also sort of proved our, our business model. And, and now instead of having just an idea, we have an actual business with actual products and actual financials and things like that. So it was, it was contracting was a hugely important stepping stone to getting investors, getting bank loans and, and getting into our first building. Was there a reason you chose to contract brew at Stan Creek in Wisconsin instead of finding something nearby? Uh, there were kind of two. One was they were the place that would allow us to brew ourselves. Um, the other actually is more than two, I guess, but that was a, a huge criteria. Um, proximity was a big one. Um, there wasn't really, there were a couple options that would have been similar distance for us, but there was nothing much closer. Um, and and then another one was just batch size. So there are some other contract brewing or option, contract brewing options in Minnesota and Wisconsin that would have been much bigger batches that would have been just more than we would be willing to handle at that point. So basically you picked the closest brewery to you that had the size that you wanted and that was also letting you people contract brew. Exactly. Like if you if you were to do it again, would you follow the same route, kind of going contract brew first? Um I think it's a it's an it depends answer. Uh for us, I I can't imagine having done it another way just given where we were starting from um, and and also where the market was at that point. You know, if you're starting a brewery today in 2018, there, you know, far fewer people need to be introduced to the idea of craft beer than even eight or 10 years ago. You know, it's just such a bigger thing. Um, uh, the other big one, again, that changed was uh, in Minnesota, the ability to have a tap room and sell direct to consumer. I mean, that wasn't an option. And so, we weren't losing out on that option by contracting, whereas today you you wouldn't be able to do that at least in Minnesota because you can't sell um, you can't contract brew somewhere else and then sell that beer in direct to consumer. You have to go through distribution and retail for that. Ah, uh, okay. So that would that would render you somewhat ineligible for the uh, for the tap room kind of you know Surly Law stuff. Exactly. Okay. So maybe now it's not the great. It wouldn't necessarily be the greatest move, huh? Yeah, and it's okay. not necessarily the wrong move, depending on what you're trying to accomplish. And but yeah, there's, there's. I wouldn't uh, advise it or advise against it, um, kind of categorically. It all kind of depends on the situation. Okay, uh, and like you were saying, you coming from where you were coming from. That is. No, basically no real business business experience, no real brewing experience, industry experience at all. The contract brewing was a good stepping stone to help you learn that. But if you already knew all that stuff and you didn't need to build up that um, knowledge, then maybe the, maybe you could skip contract brewing. So maybe if you were to do this, if you were to do it again, maybe flash back, but have all the knowledge you have now, would you skip it? Yeah, I mean, in, in that case, yeah, I, I would I would feel much more confident in in my our ability to to do that without going through contract brewing for sure. So these days, your brewery is you said like the fourth or fifth biggest in the state, um, which means you've gone through some pretty insane growth. Uh, would you would you attribute that to? like good timing, you know, kind of catching the wave at the very beginning of the craft beer revolution or 
would you give yourself a little more credit than that and maybe saying like, you know, your growth is something that maybe your special sauce? I think it's definitely both. Like I, I would love to give us just all the credit that we can because, you know, I think there's a lot of people in our company who have done some amazing things and, and I'm really proud of the beers we make and, you know, the effort we make in sales and marketing and just across the board, you know, it, it would be doing a disservice to, to our employees, I think, to, to give it all to timing, but you can't ignore timing too, because I mean, we, we, we started a very, very good time and, and by the combination of having that good timing and then, and then doing a, a few things right, I think got us to where we are today. Um, I think doing things exactly as we did in 2009, but doing them in 2018 would be a much tougher road because timing is not working against you, probably not for you. Do you plan on sort of continuing your growth? Um, like, or are you feeling the squeeze from all these other breweries around? Do you think there's space for you to grow into still? Yeah, we do think so. Uh, there, I mean, uh, which is not to say we don't feel the squeeze. I think everybody today feels the squeeze with maybe very few exceptions. Um, the, it's just, there's far, far more beer out there than there was, um, 10 or even five years ago. So, uh, but I don't think that means that nobody can grow anymore. And, and we certainly plan to, it's just a matter of, um, maybe tempering your expectations versus what they might've been at other times. And also acknowledging that we're uh, 30,000 barrels now, not 4,000 barrels like we were a number of years ago. So, you know, it's just a far bigger growth uh, a base to grow on. But I think there's always room for um, beer that's the the right beer in the right place at the right time. And we're, we're always trying to figure out that, that balance. You said you're 30,000 barrels a year, which I think puts you over that, which sounds like it puts you over that 20K limit for self-distributing. So you must have recently gone through that transition. We actually never self-distributed. We, uh, since day one, uh, have went through wholesalers. Oh, wow. Since day one. So back when you're doing contract and everything. Okay. I was going to ask about how that transition looked, but, uh, all right, right on. Um, if you had self-distributed from the very beginning, what would have been different? Um, you know that it's, uh, yeah, it's hard to imagine. Um, the, in some ways, I think it would have been an advantage because um, we – I've never worked at a distributor and I've never been a distributor sales rep. But in being a self-distributed brewery, we would have been doing some of that. And so I think having even a, a limited amount of experience in that um, can be very helpful for a brewery that eventually kind of graduates to going through other distribution in that you, you just have that hands-on uh, muscle memory of what it's like to to do the actual distribution yourself. Um, on the other hand, I don't think we would have taken off nearly in the way that we did because we got in uh, in the beginning with uh, a wholesaler here in town, Hohenstein's, who um, was even at that time they were kind of the leader at uh, of distributing craft beer in in this area, and they were excited to get in. Uh, a new local brand. They didn't really have uh, much in that way. And they had a great team of reps who really understood how to sell craft with, at a time in which that was the exception for sure. I mean, um, there, there just weren't that many 
distribution houses that that had as much craft or understood it as well as they did uh, back in 2009 when we started with them. So we got out of the gate and started selling beer um, quite a bit faster than I think we otherwise would have um, because we were working through distribution. Um, other other experiences have been different from that. I think you know you could talk to other breweries who self-distributed and started out really fast too, but they were different people doing a different business model at a different time, and and that could explain some of it. I mean, for us, we again because we were not very experienced at that time. I think it took out uh, the 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 lack of experience on the distribution side um, and, and put it into the hands of people with a lot of experience on it. And also um, the, the sort of scalability thing of we didn't have to worry about our trucks breaking down or having a big enough cooler or just all the, the blocking and tackling that distribution is was, was handled by someone who knew what they were doing. Yeah, you've got like just I'm I'm now fantasizing about this beautiful little like black box operation you had going on where you walked into someone else's brewery, brewed a beer, and then put that beer onto trucks, and then that was it. So your job was like was literally just brewing. It's almost the dream gig for these for a home brewer that wants to scale up. Like that's the best way to do it. I can't imagine like that just seems so clean and easy. Um, were there were there more hurdles than I'm imagining maybe in like opening, like you, you, you kind of hear what I'm saying, right? Like that just go somewhere, brew, put it on a truck and you're done. Seems almost too simple to me, too easy. Uh, kind of. Yeah. You know, as you said it, I was like, God, that does sound pretty good. Um, uh, compared to, to today, but, um, no, I mean, there were plenty of hurdles. Um, one, I mean, all four of us, and we didn't have any employees for really almost the first three years. So all four of us, he either were in school, like was my case, or had day jobs. Um, and so we were doing this on on top of an already kind of full, um, normal career, family, life sort of balance. Mm-hmm. And so it was incredibly demanding on time. And even though, yeah, we didn't have to run the full operation of the brewery um, or, or distribution side of it, um, there was an incredible amount to do just in terms of learning how to sell a business or sorry, learning how to run a business. Um, and, and the other side of it is no, we didn't do our self distribution, uh, like a lot of startup breweries do now, but we worked very hard at selling the beer. So, um, and and I think that is, is a huge part of what got us off to a strong start and, and to where we are today in that, um, Hohenstein's our, our only distributor at that time had, reps and drivers and warehouse people that were getting the orders for the beer, getting the beer to the account, getting the beer on tap. But we were able to focus our time on actually um, forming relationships with accounts, um, sampling to end consumers in those bars. Um, and so we spent a lot of time on the, the sort of sales side or the promotional side uh, of the beer rather than um, – driving the truck to bring it to the account. So there's a lot yeah. to do there for sure. Um, what was your, so yeah, you, you were talking about 
you know, learning all this business stuff, pulling together that kind of experience. You did lots of marketing, basically. So what did that, what did that kind of look like? With your distributors finding, your distributor is the one who's finding you tap handles and getting you on shelves somewhere, but obviously you need to be able to, you need to build up that, uh, that mind share, you know, for people. So how are you building your brand back in those early days? Uh, especially in the early days, it, so we were draft only for our first uh, little over two years. Um, so it was all on-premise, you know, bars and restaurants. And a lot of, I mean, we, yeah, there was some more like what I would call marketing. So we're doing, you know, the, the typical social media, which at that time was just really Facebook and Twitter for us. Um, and, um, you know, developing our website, doing email campaigns and signing people up for that. So that was kind of the marketing side. And then just doing... Uh, a lot of bar promotions. So going out to bars, getting to know the bar managers, the bartenders, the the regular customers at those those accounts, um, and getting sort of our name and faces out there. And you know, I wouldn't even call it some some sort of like grand strategy that we had planned early on. It was just kind of like, oh, well, they would love to see us at this bar. They just put us on tap, or hey, let's go support that place. We we heard they were going to bring it in. And, and, you know, it turns out that's still what a lot of selling craft beer is, is being the face to the customer, whether that, whether you mean the actual purchasing manager that's at a bar or the person who's ordering a pint off the tap. And, and that is kind of a model that we, we still try to continue to today. As your brewery grew, and you moved from this contract model to your full-blown model, now with two breweries um, and all this stuff. How did your role change? Yeah, that's uh, – sometimes I st stop and think, and I'm like, man, I don't do anything that I used to do two or five years ago. Um, so uh, me personally, uh, like very early on, and I think I said a few minutes ago, you know, we had no employees for the first three years. It was just the four of us. We had no payroll. All of us were not taking a paycheck or anything. Um, and it was always kind of an all hands on deck for whatever was needed. So, um, you know, myself and Pete would drive over to, to Sand Creek to brew or something. Um, or, you know, Jim and Brian are out at, uh, doing a bar promo, um, down to just like the minutia of, you know, doing the books. Like I had just been going to school for business, but I had never done, you know, actual accounting, invoicing and receiving and, you know, bookkeeping and stuff like that before. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and then, it, you know, it wasn't long before we were working on our own brewery. So even though we were, um, everything we sold was from contract brewing for the first two years, we were already building out our first brewery uh, 10 months after we sold our first drop. So very quickly, all of a sudden I got into, all right, we got this building downtown. We're going to demo the existing walls in there and start work, working with contractors to, um, get uh, the construction stuff planned to um, ordering equipment. And then now all of a sudden, you know, fast forward a little bit, we've got uh, a brewery that needs to be operated and all of us kind of chipped in uh, at various times on either some brewing or packaging or just cleaning around there. And then, then we're hiring and then now we're opening the tap room in, in 2012. And so, you know, the, the four of us co-founders were all working the bar the day that the taproom opened and, and still would pull bar shifts for um, that first year or two uh, with some regularity. Um, 
and before before long after that, all of a sudden we've you know now we have about fifteen or twenty people uh, in the company, and now we're working on building the second brewery. Um, so it's just uh, you know has continued to evolve, and we've continued to refine things. Where going from four people uh, and our wives uh, helping out trying to make the thing work on a part-time basis to now having 60 people full-time roughly um, and having a lot more specialization, you know. So we have uh, brewers that basically only brew, they don't package, and we have packaging people that only package, they don't brew, and we have bar staff who only works in the tap room behind the bar and um, you know, we have a finance department, a marketing, a sales. So it's it's just gotten much more specialized, I think is a good way to sum it up. So like as it grew more and more specialized and you brought on more and more people who could do these jobs, what does it feel like to be a to be like the CEO and know full well that you just hired someone that is, you know, better at marketing than you ever were? When previously, you know, that was part of your duties. I would never admit that. Um, no, it's <laughs> uh it's it's tough because um, it you have to part way doing things that you might really enjoy in a lot of cases and in other cases not as much enjoy. Um, mm-hmm. And in some ways, yeah, there's – I think, you know, and it's probably true of anybody who's in a growing company of any type who has to delegate things as they, they move on. Um, it's hard to let go of things, especially things that you think you're really good at and have a comfort zone in. To move on to things that you are less comfortable with, that you're probably less good at than what you were doing previously, um, mm-hmm. but you have to move in that because you're the person that's responsible for it and and that the company needs to do that. Um, so yeah, it, it's challenging, uh, but it's also um, it's liberating because it hopefully you do find somebody that's better at at that task than you were, and and for me, you know, I. I'm I'm happy to know that we've got brewers that are awesome with way more experience and, and skill than than I ever had, um, and salespeople. You know that we we have uh, several salespeople who were selling beer back when I was still in either college or high school, um, so they know a lot more about sales than than I do currently, uh, and and just bring all that experience with them. So. It's tough because it, in some ways you feel a little less hands-on with things, but it's also rewarding because you see great people doing great things and things getting done well, and you see the results of that, and that's what's rewarding. One of the things we haven't talked about at all is the actual beer that you guys brew. So how about we talk a little bit about that? So I'm looking at your website. You guys have an extensive like barrel-aged program. Um, a lot of good, uh, like Brett stuff, mixed culture, um, a handful of one-offs and stuff like that. Um, how about you talk a little bit about what you choose to brew and why? Yeah. So, um, the first two beers you probably saw there on our website, you already mentioned one of them, Lonely Blonde, uh, and the other one, Sweet Child of Vine, uh, IPA. So those were the first two beers we ever, um, sold, uh, to the public, um, Sweet Child was actually the first one, and that was the one that uh, for a long time was our bestseller. Uh, Lonely Blonde has overtaken that actually in recent years. So those wow. are the yeah um, those are the two that people know us most for, um, and we're certainly proud of those beers. I think uh, you know you mentioned Blonde earlier. Like I I love that beer. I think it's it's a great all around beer, and and there are very few styles of beer that I categorically don't like. I mean I like almost every. 
uh, example of a, of a well-done beer of any given style. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, I don't want to drink, uh, you know, a quad or a barrel aged stout when it's 90 degrees out on, and I'm on a patio. Yeah. Um, Lonely Blonde is one of those beers that it works everywhere, uh, in, in almost any setting, whether I'm just having it with pizza or having a beer after work on a patio or, or, you know, after a bike ride or something. And, um, so I love it for that. Um, we, uh, you know, you mentioned some of the other ones. I mean, we, I'm really proud of the diversity of beers that we're able to brew, uh, what I think is pretty well. Um, some of our more hop forward styles are our 300 IPA and our hop star are our two hoppiest beers in our, our year round lineup. Both of them are, are kind of driven by some of the newer, uh, proprietary hops like Mosaic and Simcoe and Citra and Amarillo, um, and are great examples of beers using those, those really, uh, extraordinary hops. Um, and then, yeah, in, in more recent years, we've started to do, uh, you mentioned our, our, so our mixed culture, uh, program, we call it the culture project. Um, you know, those beers are, are really hard to, to get out with it with any regularity because it's so much just dictated by the time spent in the barrel and having the room to have the barrels and the money to buy the barrels and all that. We've done uh, about three iterations of that series so far that we've released, and they're they're all really exceptional um, for their own own reasons. Um, and we do quite a bit of clean barrel aging as well, or what we call clean. So in you know former spirits barrels, not inoculating with uh, lacto or PDO or brett or anything like that. Um, and uh, you know we we've uh, recently this year we released uh, actually a mixed pack of four different barrel-aged beers in in one package uh, of cans. So there was um, two different versions of our, our Worthy Adversary Imperial Stout, one aged in uh, port and Madeira barrels, one aged in cognac barrels. And then we had a, a porter aged in bourbon barrels and our Libertine Imperial Red Ale also aged in bourbon barrels. So um, to my knowledge, I've never seen another... Uh, barrel-aged beer mix pack quite like that before. Um, no, yeah. And 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 I was really, you know, it was, it was a very small run just because it's tough to do anything barrel like that on any significant scale. But it was it was pretty cool to be able to to show everyone um, that sort of diversity all in, in one package you could buy at retail. I like how you've got a lot of your like that four pack came in cans. That's like kind of insane to me having barrel aged beer in cans and I don't know why I've just never seen it well that's kind of why we did it because we're like I don't know if anybody's done this before but why not um and maybe that's why you do it is because nobody else has done it before um and it it just kind of worked out well to do it that way and maybe in the future if we do it again maybe we because we both can and bottle um mm -hmm. we we could do it in bottles as well but it just happened to work pretty well in that situation and, and it was kind of fun to to do something really off the wall like that um now that i'm now that you mentioned that you can and bottle and like i i knew that you bottled and i knew that you can't but it looked yeah you looks like you can and bottle the same beers so what's the what's the rationale behind that um you know i, I think it's just making sure that we have the right beers available in the right format for where they're going to be sold. Um, the, we started out, uh, as I said, draft only for a couple of years, and then we started bottling, and we were 
draft and bottle only until about 2015. And then in 2015, we were just, you know, everybody was probably noticing how big cans were becoming. Um, it, it, in some ways, it feels like we're an anomaly today in that we, we sell bottles because it seems like every new brewery that started after a certain year just cans. And uh-huh. th- there's great reasons for that. Cans are great for a lot of things that they're better for, uh, better than bottles for. Um, but bottles are great for beer, and I think sometimes the uh, the arguments for cans are maybe a little bit overblown. Um, I don't think one is is universally better than the other. I think they each have their place. Um, so as we went from having bottles, which we're 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 really thrilled with the the quality of beer we can get in bottles, uh, really really low dissolved oxygen um, that a lot of canning lines can't really touch. Um, and, and, you know, beer, a lot of people, you know, I think amongst beer enthusiasts, it's like, oh yeah, well we pour our, our beer into a bottle and we drink it. But the reality is a lot of people out there drink out of the package, whether that's a can or a bottle. And if I'm going to drink out of the package, I often prefer to drink out of a bottle. So, um, we still like our bottles for, for that reason. Um, but cans are, are, are great for, for other reasons. Obviously the, what everybody knows, the, just the portability, um, the, the ability to get them in in certain venues that you wouldn't otherwise be able to have bottles in is is, is an obvious one, um, and and they ship well. So there's, you know, we're we're just trying to make sure we have available to our customers um, the format that fits their their specific needs. Let's talk about the industry a little bit. So you guys are up there. You're this big, a big regional brewery. How, how many states do you distribute to? We're currently in 11. 11. Okay. So you're actually, you're getting way up there. Um, yeah, 30,000 barrels lets you get pretty good reach. Um, you're still well out of sort of like the, you know, you're, you're pretty big for a craft brewery, but you're maybe not quite bumping up on that edge where maybe Budweiser is going to be a threat to you. Are you worried ever? Uh, like, what will happen? What would happen to you if you got that call from Budweiser saying, "Hey, look, you're you're getting too big. Let's we want to buy you out." Yeah, that's uh, you know we haven't got that call yet, so I haven't spent a lot of time worrying about it, I guess. And um, I think you know the the concern about being too big. Um, we, we never set out with the idea that we want to be acquired by somebody. We've, we kind of said the opposite. We want to build and grow this business, and we want to be successful on, on, a, on a business standpoint, but we want to be doing something we, we like with our time, and you know, you got to do something. And we, we happen to like making beer and running the company and, uh, and doing a lot of the things day in and day out that that entails. Um, and so when I think about getting bigger and, and maybe the threat, it's it's more about it's it's just challenging to compete at a certain level. You know, it's one thing if you're under ten thousand barrels and you're selling in one market or one state, and you're kind of under the radar in some ways, and, and you don't have to to, to uh, I don't even know how to say it, but there there are things you can just kind of ignore because they're not your problem yet, but. As you get bigger and you're trying to go to more states and, you know, bigger accounts are, are more demanding for you, so whether it be the distributors or the retailers. And and all of a sudden you're, whereas before when you were smaller, you might not have been, say, directly competing with the Anheuser-Busch's of the, of the world. Um, now in a, in a lot of cases you might be because um, it's either 
their floor stack of cases or yours at this account and and they can do a lot of things that we we can't or won't in terms of just pricing and what they can offer in, in sales incentives and things like that because they're just so much bigger. So like I think the yeah the sort of scary part about growing is that you get sort of caught in the middle of you're not small anymore but you're not even close to big. So you're yeah you're you're feeling like you're kind of caught caught in the middle. So you're you're not really you're feeling a squeeze sort of from both ends a little bit. The smaller breweries that are taking up all the local drinking spots and all the big breweries that are taking up all the shelf space. Yeah, I think that's a it's a pretty accurate way to to describe it. Yeah. Do you, would how do you sort of see the future of the craft beer evolution? You know, breweries being able to grow, sort of reaching a scale of what you are. Do you think that do you think it's slowing down? Um, I mean, the, the, the overall growth rate of the craft beer segment is, is definitely slowing down. Uh, there's, there's numbers that support that. Um, the number of breweries opening in the country hasn't seemed to have tailed off very much. So you got this interesting thing where the overall consumption of craft beer is maybe starting to level off. I don't think it's going to stop, you know, for good by any means, but it's just going through a phase where it's like it's not growing like it was for the last five years for sure, and it's it probably won't grow that fast again for quite a while. Uh, but meanwhile, there's still more and more competition in the marketplace, and again, that's new breweries opening up, but also uh, the real big behemoths in the world um, buying breweries and taking those on to a national level and competing with you in other ways. So, yeah, it's it's definitely tougher. Speaking about like you know, the craft craft beer drinking kind of leveling off, I'd say like even five years ago when I was like really drinking a lot of craft beer and really doing everything I could to learn everything about it, you know, just being a Cicerone and all, trying to really nerd out, it was really easy to find people who I could, you know, teach about beer, right? I could teach them anything. Oh, what do we, you want to know what kind of beer this is or whatever this is or that is. And these days I'm almost delighted to find someone who has a question to ask me about beer because everyone knows so much. And, uh, I think everyone's getting good and really, really educated about the world of craft beer. And there might not be too many more people who are interested in learning that. Well, you know, it's funny. You could take that statement two ways. One that I would agree, like people are way more educated now than they were, five or ten years ago but also like there's probably an element of a lot of people thinking they don't need in, to learn anymore because they know it all um we, yeah. we run into a few of those anyway but yeah i mean it's it's just a lot different than it, than it was because there there's so much more information out there and and I, I even think about you know say when i so i graduated from college in in 2001 and i knew virtually nothing about beer at that time um, and, and there were very few local options and I started to get to know those and, um, but it was like a, it was a different thing to be drinking craft beer, um, at, at that time. And now, uh, people who come of drinking age and, uh, they're already aware of craft breweries. They're, they didn't just start, they've always been around to those people. Um, and so it's just, yeah, there, there's kind of a built in knowledge base that didn't exist, um, not that long ago. It's like almost like um, a generational thing, like a digital native kind of, you know, craft beer native. Beer native, totally. Yeah, that's that's a good analogy. We've been talking for a while now, so what do you say we do a quick lightning round? Sure. 
All right, uh, just a handful of questions. Some of them are easy, some of them are hard, and a couple. And one of them is way out of left field. First question: How old are you? I'm 35. 35. You are the CEO and co-founder of this brewery at 35, the fourth biggest in all of Minnesota. So that's pretty cool. Well, the thing is, when you start your own brewery, you can call yourself whatever you want. So CEO was a <laughs> title I got early on and probably didn't deserve at that time, and hopefully I'm getting there. Second question, what is your favorite beer that you brew at your brewery? Oh, that's always a tough one. I, uh, I say it's kind of like uh, if you have kids, you know, like you can't say which one of your kids is your favorite, even though you probably have an idea in your mind um, mm -hmm. what it is. But, uh, no, it, it really depends on the situation. So what what have I drank the most of historically of our beers? Probably Lonely Blonde. What do I drink most of currently? I would say either our Pills uh, or our Hopstar, which is our Session IPA. Let's say it looks like you favor your, your year-round offering. So that kind of makes sense just because they're always there. So you have been drinking those. Um, next question, what's your favorite beer of all time? Perhaps the beer that turned you into the beer drinker you are today. Oh man, that's, should, that's, should be easier, but I don't know if it is. Um, I'll, I'll answer the turn me into the beer drinker I am today. So, um, I, when I was a junior in college, I studied abroad in Australia in uh, a suburb of Perth. So way out in Western Australia, kind of the middle of nowhere or the edge of nowhere, and uh, the place we were staying uh, was just a few blocks from a brewery called Little Creatures. Um, and they were kind of one of the early uh, craft breweries in Australia. And they made, uh, still do, uh, an exceptional American-style pale ale. It was based all around Cascades. Um, all of it was bottle-conditioned. I think they always used whole cone hops for, for the entire brew. Just an exceptional... I'd, I, I haven't had that beer in probably, I was last there in 06, so probably, wow, 12 years, I guess. Um, <clears throat> but it, it was the beer that kind of woke me up to what craft beer could be and kind of got me away from the standard macro domestic stuff that you find yourself drinking in college to starting to look for, for more beer. Okay, so you got your craft beer thing started in Australia. What would you say the name of that brewery was again? Little Creatures. It's referring Little to the, the yeast and the bottle conditioning, I guess. Okay, not referring to the toads that are everywhere in Australia? Um, hopefully not, or hopefully they weren't involved in the brewing process. <laughs> <laughs> last lightning round question is, when was the last time you cried? Oh, man, that is a good question. I've never gotten that one in a lightning round. Um, I, I'm a guy who's not afraid to shed a tear here or there. It was probably something to do. I have a two-year-old daughter, and it's probably something to do with her, um, although she usually makes me cry because I'm laughing. Uh, but there's been some sentimental moments, moments with her for sure. Oh, that's touching. <laughs> that's that's the uh, I'd say that's one of the one of the answers I get the most often. <laughs> well, I'm sure it's on my mind because my wife and I are expecting in like ten days here, so I'm, that'll be the next time oh, I cry if, if not sooner. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you mentioned one thing, but you mentioned that you like drinking the Lonely Blonde after uh, after a bike ride. Do you ride bikes a lot? I do, yeah. Uh, I, we, I have uh, I have three different bikes. I got kind of my 
my commuter bike with fenders on it and and a rack, and then I have my mountain bike, and then I got a, a carbon fiber road bike. So I try and get out quite a bit, um, less than I'd like to now. Is, actually happens, but actually this morning I live about it's literally five minutes out my front door from some great single track, so I was able to ride that for about half an hour, forty five minutes before coming to work. Oh wow! Right on. Um, yeah, my, my blog is called Cycling Cicerone. The whole, the whole idea is to find breweries that are on good bike routes. Um, it, my, in Seattle, that makes a lot of sense because the bike routes are not great and they're not really well marked and Google Maps doesn't know about them. So it makes, it's easy for me to kind of ride around and say, well, guess what? You can hit these six breweries, no problem. But I found that in Minneapolis, it's, the bike infrastructure there is so good. I think you guys consistently win like the number one bikeable city, uh, in America, so the bike infrastructure there is so good, you can just Google Maps wherever you're trying to go and be fairly confident that there will be bike racks when you get there and you'll be on bike like bike lanes the whole way. It's incredible. So I live uh, about, it's well, as I bike, it's seven miles from, from our Northeast Brewery. And I can bike all except for the last like eight blocks on trails. Um, and, and they're great trails and it's, I mean, it's true of a lot of people who live in the city. It, I mean, you can get all over the place on either, uh, dedicated trails that are not even on roadways to now there's more and more divided roadways to, um, just even biking on the streets. You know, I, I, some people who are less comfortable with that or less familiar with it don't like it as much, but I'd say that there are not everyone, every driver is super courteous or aware of bikers uh for sure but in in general in the city cars are pretty good around bikers so even if you are on the streets it's it's not terrifying most of the time i'm super jealous what do you guys do in the winter though if you're trying do you bike in the winter so i don't a lot i'm i'm one of those people who likes the idea of it but hasn't actually gotten around to it i didn't get my mountain bike that long ago so i'd like to say that i might be able to Try it a little more um, just with a, a bike that's a little better equipped to it. Um, obviously, with the rise of fat bikes, so winter biking is is a, a much more attainable thing for a lot of people. Um, the cities are, are really good with trail uh, clearing our trails of snow and ice pretty quickly after it happens. But still, it's, you know, if you're not on the trails, you're on streets and the streets might be icy. And so it's, it's challenging. But, um, yeah, there is still a lot of Minnesotans who bike in – through the winter too, which I'm always impressed by because it's, it's cold here in the winter. Gosh. Well, congratulations for living in a city that at least clears out your bike lane, like bike paths. That's really cool. <laughs> yeah. We're, uh, we're, I think, Oh, actually I think a lot of people do know how good we have it, but we should never take it for granted for sure. Yeah. Um, all right, man, we've been talking for a long time. Thank you so much. You are the co-founder and CEO of Fulton Brewery in Minneapolis. Uh, you uh, are an avid bike rider, mountain biker, and congratulations on your upcoming child and your enormous brewery, fourth biggest in the state. Uh, thank you so much for chatting with me. All right, well, thanks for the call. Uh, yeah, it's been great to talk. Let's go grab a beer. All right, sounds like a plan. Thank you so much, Ryan. I hope I actually get to see Fulton's next time I'm in Minneapolis. Thanks for listening to Washington Beer Talk. If you like what you heard, then you can find other episodes of the podcast on Stitcher, iTunes, and Google Play. Don't forget to like, leave a review, and share with your friends.